Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux. This is Last Week in the Church, the show that is faithfully devoted to telling you news that you probably already heard because it happened several days ago. But look, even though we're going to be serving up some stale stuff, it has not been served with our particular brand of relish. So here's what we've got on our chalkboard menu this week. First, is the Vatican's trial of the century turning into Pope Francis's own personal Watergate? Then, the most significant blow for women yet on Pope Francis's watch. The Vatican wades boldly once more into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. A religious freedom throwdown for President Joe Biden. And finally, a female Peruvian journalist wins a big-time award for her reporting on sex abuse scandals in the Catholic Church. That's what we've got, so please stick around. Okay, happy Monday to you. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. Mine, to be quite honest with you, was a bit of a marathon from start to finish. It's one of those weekends where, like, randomly... A bunch of different stuff that would normally be spread out over an entire month all happens in a 48-hour span of time. So frankly, I woke up this morning already exhausted. I came to this work week pre-exhausted. That's how on top of things I am. But always invigorates me to do this show. So here's where we're starting. Look, I'm going to talk to you for a few minutes about a Vatican trial that involves money. And I know for a fact that whenever I talk on this show about Vatican finances, I probably lose half my audience because the thing of it is, most of us don't understand finance all that well to begin with. Secondly, Vatican finance stories, they just seem so like weird and completely Italian that they are impossible for an an outsider to understand. And then third, most of us, I think, probably shrug our shoulders when we hear Oh, there's financial corruption in the Vatican? Uh, Okay, why don't you report that the sun came up this morning or that water is wet, right? And so you're just, the, the basic reaction usually is next. But look, I know all that. I agree with all that. I feel all that in my bones. But nevertheless, I'm gonna insist that it is important for us to pay attention to this stuff because what's really on the line here is the success or failure of Pope Francis's reform effort. Pope Francis is trying to change the culture in the Vatican from one of power to one of service. Now, to do that, to change a culture, you have to hit them where it hurts, and that means the power of the purse. So if this doesn't work, then you might as well write an obituary for the whole thing. And that's what's at stake. So here are the latest developments. This trial, as you have heard us discuss before, centers on a $400 million real estate deal in London that was orchestrated by the Vatican Secretariat of State, unfolded in a couple of different phases, obviously ended horrifically badly. Ten people are now on criminal trial in front of a Vatican tribunal, including, for the very first time, a cardinal of the Catholic Church, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, and a handful of corporate entities on various charges of embezzlement, fraud, misappropriation, basically having having their hands in the cookie jar. Now, so here are the two latest developments. One, the Vatican is now the owner 
of this property in London at 60 Sloan Street in the posh neighborhood of Chelsea. It's a sort of abandoned warehouse that belonged to the Harrods department store chain. And the Vatican's original plan was to buy it up and then flip it into luxury apartments and pay back the investment and then some with the rental income. It was a great plan, frankly. Every real estate expert in London will tell you that it was basically like foolproof. Like the thing about London real estate is that it never goes down in value. You know, our managing editor at Crux, Charles Collins, who lives in Leicester in the UK, the way he puts it is, you could be in any random London neighborhood and pick up a clump of dirt and carry it across the street. By the time you got to the corner, it would have gone up in value. And yet, the Vatican is now so desperate to unload this property that it is apparently, reportedly, going to sell it to a holding company by the name of Bain Company for about 250 million US. Now, listen, I am no mathematician, but what I know is if they spent 400 million buying this place and they're selling it for 250, then they're taking a $150 million bath. And that is one of the unfathomable dimensions of this story. How in the world is it possible that a basic surefire take it to the bank can't miss investment went so horribly wrong? Was it criminal, as Vatican prosecutors are alleging, or was it simple incompetence, basically? Stupidity on the part of the, the financiers the Vatican relied on and the superiors in the Vatican system who were signing off on all of this stuff. That, I suppose, is one of the questions this trial is intended to answer. The other development. There are tapes that are at the heart of this trial now. The star witness for the prosecution is an Italian Monsignor by the name of Alberto Perlasca who was the head of the finance office and the Secretary of State, one of the architects of the London deal, who got out ahead of things, he saw the handwriting on the wall, went to prosecutors, volunteered to basically roll over on his colleagues. And so his testimony is at the heart of the prosecution case. Now, at the beginning of the trial over the summer, prosecutors submitted written transcripts of all of their interviews with Prolaska and other witnesses uh, as part of the discovery process. However, it emerged that they had also video and audio taped many of those interrogations. Defense lawyers, and there are 30 of them, given all the defendants involved, those defense lawyers demanded access to those recordings, understandably. The tribunal ruled in the summer that they were supposed to get them. Prosecutors refused to turn them over. So the court last month ruled again that they had to turn them over. They finally did this week. So they turned over a total of 52 DVDs containing about 100 hours of either video or audio recordings. They also turned over a written guide to what was in this stuff. Now, only defense attorneys right now have access to it. We don't yet know if there are any surprises in those tapes. But what we do know is that there was a big surprise in that accompanying documentation, which was a list of 10 omissions in the video recordings, that is 10 places 
where the prosecutors basically decided to cut stuff out, and a list of 28 omissions in the audio recordings, again, where prosecutors decided to cut stuff out. And in every case, the only explanation given was investigative interests. Now, here's the comparison to Watergate. You will remember that in the, amid the Watergate scandal, it was 18 and a half minutes of deleted tape uh, on the tapes of those White House conversations that had been turned over to prosecutors that helped bring down the Nixon administration, cemented the impression that they've got to have something to hide. Well, now prosecutors in this trial of the century have, took, have taken out, uh, we don't know exactly how long, but one uh, forensic analysis of all this suggests it's about 2% of the total, which would mean two hours, two hours of recordings for mystifying motives. Defense attorneys have appealed. There is going to be a hearing next week. We will see what the court does. But look, the bottom line is this. In the court of public opinion, as opposed to the Vatican Tribunal, I think the impression is growing that prosecutors, too, must have something to hide. Some people think it's explicit mentions to what the pope knew and what he knew it. Some people think what's been cut out is prosecutors threatening Perlaska and other witnesses, which would make you think their testimony is coerced, we don't know. And until a clear and convincing answer has been given to that question, I suspect it is going to be difficult to win hearts and minds around the idea that this is a full court press for the truth. All right. Second, the most significant blow yet for women on Pope Francis's watch. Pope Francis this week appointed an Italian nun, uh, a member of the Franciscan Sisters of the Eucharist, Sister Raffaella Petrini, to the position of Secretary General of the Vatican City State, the government of the Vatican City State, or as we call it around here, the Governatorato. Now, just a bit of Vatican 101. You know, when people talk about the Vatican, meaning all this stuff over here in Rome, they're actually shoving together two things that are distinct. One is the Roman Curia, which is the government of the universal church. So the congregation for the, ta for the faith that makes doctrinal decisions and so on. The other is the government of the city-state, the 108-acre physical space of the Vatican, plus all the other properties the Vatican owns in Rome and Italy and elsewhere. And they're roughly the same size. And they both are considered enormously powerful, in part because the government of the Vatican City State actually governs, controls most of the Vatican's assets. And so the number two official there, the sort of chief of staff, if you like, of the government, that is a big deal. That is an honest to God, real power broker in the Vatican system. Footnote, by the way. You know who once had that job? Then Monsignor Carlo Maria Vigano, who went on to become the Pope's ambassador in the United States, uh, and then <laughs> went on to become the would-be whistleblower, dropping these bombshell accusations about the Pope and the McCarrick case, had, has gone on to become the Pope's premier thorn in the side about virtually everything. I'm not suggesting that Sister Petrini's career is going to end with quite the same trajectory, but nevertheless, it is a point 
that people who occupy this position, usually they're, they're important in that role and they go on to even bigger and, and sometimes better things. So the fact that the Pope has put a woman into this position, that is a big deal. That is actually real change because I can tell you that in the world of the Vatican, the secretary of the governatorato, that is somebody that when they talk, you listen. When they walk into rooms, conversations stop. People line up to try to curry favor with them. Now, I know that there are some who believe that as long as the Pope is saying no to women priests, then the rest of this is all window dressing and it doesn't matter. But if you can somehow conceptually bracket that off and say, okay, there's a debate about ordination, but that's over here. But there are lots of ways women can matter without Roman collars. Is the Pope serious about it? This is probably the most significant piece of evidence we've had to date that he is indeed serious. Sister Raphael Petrini, one to watch. Third this week, the Pope received yet another head of state. He's been doing that a lot lately. This time it was President Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority. This is actually the sixth time that President Abbas has come to the Vatican to meet a Pope. The Palestinians have always been proud of their relationship with the Vatican, and the Vatican likewise has always had a soft spot in its collective heart for the Palestinians. In fact, one of the times that Yasser Arafat came to visit Pope, now Saint, John Paul II, he gave him a collection of ivory carved Stations of the Cross that were made by a craftsman on the West Bank. Those Stations of the Cross, John Paul had them put up in the chapel of the new Synod building. So every time there's a Synod of Bishops and a bishop goes in there in the morning to pray before you know, things get started or whatever, he is praying in front of Stations of the Cross provided by Palestinians, by Yasser Arafat. And in this particular meeting, Pope Francis and President Abbas spent 50 minutes behind closed doors. We don't actually know much of anything about what they talked about. But then uh, Abbas went on for the customary meeting with Italian Cardinal Pietro Parolin, the Secretary of State, British Archbishop Paul Gallagher, the Vatican's Foreign Minister. We do know something about that meeting. Both sides released statements. What we learned is the Vatican once again reiterated its commitment for the two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, meaning an independent sovereign Palestine and Israel with security guarantees for the integrity of its borders and the safety of its citizens. They also reiterated their support for some sort of special status for Jerusalem, a sort of international, if you like, protectorate for Jerusalem that would protect the rights of all three Abrahamic faiths, that is, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, to flourish in the city. Now, none of this is new. These have been the Vatican's diplomatic position since time immemorial. It's also hardly new that a Palestinian head of state would meet the Pope. I suppose the only thing noteworthy about this is that this is a moment in which many other global actors have basically walked away from the Israeli-Palestinian problem, feeling that there is no movement and no hope of any movement. I mean, for God's sake, there is a new government in Israel, a governing coalition, and its coalition partners don't even agree on the peace process. They don't have a common agenda, so it's not even clear if you wanted to restart negotiations who you should be talking to. And so many other actors have just sort of backburnered the whole thing.
and said, look, we are no longer going to pour money down this black hole. We will invest our time and energy in other problems that seem perhaps more amenable to solutions. This, I think, is a clear signal that the Vatican is not part of that crowd. The Vatican is going to continue to be invested in this issue because, of course, the Vatican believes that the, the Israeli-Palestinian problem and the fate of the Holy Land is the, primi- the litmus test par excellence, not merely for the ability of different faiths to live together, but for different peoples to live together. And I think what they're indicating is that no matter what anybody else does, they're not taking their chips off the table. All right. Fourth, a religious freedom litmus test for the Biden administration. President Biden's premier piece of legislation is the Build Back, sorry, the Build Back Better Act, which is his comprehensive blueprint for reconstruction after the COVID crisis. And it is scheduled for a vote in the House later this month. We'll see what happens. Now, it is controversial on a thousand different fronts, but one front that has emerged only in the past little while is a core religious freedom issue, which is this. One provision of the Build Back Better Act has to do with the way the federal government subsidizes child care. Up to this point, it's issued vouchers or certificates to parents, basically checks that they could use to pay for child care. And it was not considered federal funding of any particular provider because the decision was being made by the parent or guardian, not by a bureaucrat. However, there is a provision in this act that would change that, that would say now providers that are receiving those vouchers or certificates are to be considered federally funded, which means they have to comply with all the requirements of Title IX and other bureaucratic requirements for anybody receiving federal dollars. Now, in the case of Catholic child care providers, that would mean, for instance, they could not hire and fire on the basis of sexual orientation. They could not say, we're not going to hire anybody who's in a gay marriage. It would mean, in terms of health care coverage, they can't refuse to cover abortion and contraception, and on and on. And that, obviously, would violate the sort of conscious views, conscientious views of most of those child care providers, and it could theoretically squeeze them out of providing child care altogether, which, of course, ironically, would be directly contrary to the stated purpose of that provision of the act, which is to expand access to child care. Now, this, this problem has been signaled by leaders in Catholic child care. This week, a ad hoc coalition of six different U.S. bishops who had various committees within the U.S. Bishops Conference have written to the House Education Committee and also to the Biden administration urging them to change this before the act goes through. So far, responses have been vague and noncommittal, but this could be the first real pointed clash on religious freedom grounds between the Biden administration and the U.S. Catholic community. It's worth noting that when President Biden came calling on Pope Francis last week, the Vatican statement afterwards, unlike the White House statement, included a phrase that the two had, among other things, discussed religious freedom and freedom of conscience. Now, at the time, none of us were really clear what that was a specific reference to, 
But it may well be that the people drafting that statement saw this showdown coming and had that in mind. We will see if that sort of prod that Pope Francis may have delivered bears any fruit in terms of how the president handles this controversy. And finally, there is a journalist in Peru that if you haven't heard of, you should. Actually, there are two of them. Their names are Paula Ugaz and Pedro Salinas. They have been for a long time fighting a lonely battle to expose sex abuse scandals, scandals of abuse of authority and abuse of conscience, manipulation of conscience, in a uber-powerful lay Catholic outfit in Peru by the name of the Sodality of Christian Life, Sodalitium Christiane Vitae, uh, usually known by SCV, or more commonly just as the Sodality. And as I say, uh, this is a, in Peru, this is a big deal. It is powerful and wealthy and influential and all of that. Several years ago, Ugaz and Salinas began interviewing former members of the Sodality who had kind of horror stories to tell. They published a book on it that, that kicked the story out into full public view. Following a Vatican investigation, the founder of this outfit, Luis Fernando Figari, a Peruvian layman, has been, in, a, in, a, in essence, tossed out, that is, removed from leadership and, you know, sentenced to a life of prayer and penance. Basically, he's not supposed to have any contact with the, the organization anymore and so on. New leadership has been elected. They're trying to go through a process of reform. In other words, in a word, uh, Ugas and Salinas uh, have been basically vindicated. But uh, nevertheless, that hasn't stopped the, the sodality or people associated with the sodality from wanting to shut them up. Both have faced a kind of avalanche of legal challenges in a, what seems a patent effort to tie them down with such a mountain of legal bills that they either are distracted or just give up. Neither has indicated a willingness to do so. And recently, for her, for her trouble, Paula Ugas received a major award, Women of Courage Award, from the International Women's Media Foundation. That's an organization based in Washington, D.C. It is a quite prestigious outfit. Uh, Ugaz's award, now they had to do the ceremony virtually this year because of COVID stuff, but Ugaz's award was presented by no less a titan of the industry than Christian Amanpour. And it is obviously an important, oh, shot in the arm for two journos who have been on top of a story swimming against the tide for a long time, a story that even senior leadership in the Catholic Church has to acknowledge has been fundamentally accurate, and they have both paid a steep price. I confess I have a somewhat rooting interest in all of this because Ugaz's colleague and, and partner in all of this, Peruvian journalist Pedro Salinas, is absolutely convinced on the basis of what? I don't know, but he is absolutely convinced that he and I are twin brothers. And listen, whatever else you want to say about Pedro, uh, he is just a charmer and a hoot, and I love hanging with the guy. So aside from my journalistic interest in all this, I also have kind of a family stake in it all. So Paulo Ugaz, good on you, keep the faith, and Pedro, Pedro, let's hope that some similar reward for you is in the offing. All right, that is our show for this week. Thank you for spending part of your Monday with us. We will be here next Monday, same bat time, same bat channel. 
In the meantime, you can find full coverage of all these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very finest in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. If you have time during the next week, go on the social media platform of your choice. Give us a thumbs up, give us a retweet, give us a like, write a nice review on TripAdvisor or something. Are, are video casts on TripAdvisor? I, I don't know. But in any event, you get the idea. Uh, we would like to put the show in front of as many eyeballs as possible. Spread the gospel of recycled, reheat, and Catholic news. Over the course of the next seven days, my charge to you is stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.